The scripture reading today is Luke chapter 12, verse 35 to 48. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Pastor Mike McKinley said, Knowledge of the future changes the way we live in the present. Knowledge of the future changes the way we live in the present. That's true, isn't it? Or else it, it should be, if you're wise. And if you knew that uh, a storm was going to hit tonight, you'd, you'd probably make sure to bring the washing off the line or make sure your car windows are up. And if I told, who's, where's, is Alan here? Matt, I'm gonna go with Matt. If I told Matt that, hey, I have a surprise for you, um, me and Brian O'Driscoll are gonna come over tomorrow night for, for dinner. It's gonna be a weird party. It's gonna be a weird dinner with me and, me and Brian there. Um, the former Irish rugby captain. Yes, I know sports. Um, uh, but knowledge, knowledge of that future reality uh, should change the way of Matt's present. Um, he'd probably get ready, right? They, they'd probably tidy up the house, um, maybe make something nice for dinner, maybe a steak or something. Matt would probably do a couple curls, make sure he feels fit, you know. He'd get ready because knowledge of the future changes the way we live in the present. And remember, in this section of Luke's gospel, it has this theme of discipleship, right? It's answering this question, what, is it, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like to be citizens in the kingdom of heaven? And really, we've been seeing that there's this dual focus. It's, it's preparing us for eternity, right? There's more to life in the here and now. It's, there's a, a forever reality in God's kingdom that we should be concerned with. But it's also instructing us for the present. It's telling us what life should look like in the here and now, as we wait for heaven, 
And chapter 12 has been filled with some uh, pretty rich and, and difficult teachings uh, of what it means uh, to, to follow Jesus. And, and really the last two weeks, Jesus has answered that question in the negative, right? Don't do this. Uh, be, beware of hypocrisy. Uh, don't fear the judgment of man. Instead, fear the judgment uh, of God. Last week, uh, be on guard against covetous, covetousness, right? Do, do, don't be greedy. Don't give in to the inordinate desires of earthly riches uh, because there's more to life than the here and now. There's more to life than the abundance of your possessions. So, so don't be angry, okay? So, so don't live like this. Well, in today's passage here from verse 35, Jesus begins to answer the question in the positive, right? Here's how we should live. And the answer to that question centers on service, um, he uses some parables to teach here, and all of the parables have this, this analogy of a master and a, and a servant. Um, so it, part of the, the way he answers the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus, it's, it's focused on serving as we wait for heaven. Um, uh, almost everything that Jesus says here is in the form of a parable. Um, you guys like parables? I don't. <laughs> I, I, tend to like, I, I tend to get to a parable and be like, ah, um, but, but that's kind of the point of parables, right? Jesus doesn't use parables to, to kind of help illustrate these spiritual truths. He actually says he does it the, for the opposite reason, to kind of hide spiritual truths from crowds. Um, we don't have time to get into the full reason for that this morning, but, but oftentimes Jesus will say, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he's speaking not literally there, obviously, but figuratively. If you have ears to hear, then let him hear. Um, Alan used this, gave me this analogy of a automatic door that you get close enough and it opens, you know, and, and so parables are like that. They're this invitation to come and get close to Jesus and, and to sit there humbly and, 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 and long enough to listen, uh, to, to contemplate what these mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are. They're, they're tricky to understand, uh, but we're meant to wrestle with them and, and actually end up depending on God to help us understand, right? And I actually felt that this, the, this week when I sat down to do kind of sermon prep. I read through it the first, and my initial reaction was, I don't want to preach this, <laughs> you know? It, it's, it's, my heart was kind of hardened, right? That I don't want to preach the like severe beating and the this this servant that gets cut up and, and thrown in with the un, unfaithful. Like it just seems too hard. And and parables can do that, right? That they can they can kind of make you stiffen up and, and kind of harden your heart. Or it wasn't for me. For me, it wasn't until I sat there quietly long enough and prayed and, and asked the Lord to to soften my heart and open my heart up to these spiritual truths that you really begin to see what he's talking about. And hopefully that happens for us this morning. Um, thankfully, though, Jesus does speak very plainly in at least one verse, and it tells us what he's speaking about. And in verse 40, he says, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming again at an hour you do not expect. So that's what he's talking about. Um, if you remember back at the end of chapter 9, Luke says, he said, as the time approached for Jesus to be uh, taken up to heaven, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, right? So at this part of the story, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, where, spoiler alert, he will die on a cross, and then he will raise from the dead three days later, and afterwards he will ascend to heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the Father, uh, and he awaits his, his return to earth for a second time. And, and in these parables in, in chapter 12, Jesus is, is pointing ahead to that second return, and he's wanting to make sure that his disciples are prepared for that day, that they're ready for his return. And if you remember last week, uh, Jesus was approached by that man 
asking him to make his brother uh, share the inheritance with him. And, and Jesus' response was essentially, I'm not here to, to, to judge these things. And, and, and so his first trip to earth was not for judgment in that way, uh, if, but for extending his message of grace and for, for, for going to the cross and making a way to, to bring lost sinners into his family. But, but when he comes the second time, he will come for judgment. And we must be ready for that. And so this section gives us an idea of what that return will look like and why we must be prepared for it. Um, it's difficult to understand, so let's ask the Lord again uh, to help us. Um, Father, would you give us ears to hear? Um, even in John 6, your, your disciples say, man, some, sometimes what you're saying is hard to understand. Um, Lord, would you, would you help us understand? Um, would we... Would you soften our hearts? Would you help us to come close enough and to sit humbly enough uh, to, to open up our eyes to what you're trying to say, the realities that are greater than the here and now? Um, Spirit, would you do that? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Right, so as per verse 40, the basis for Jesus' argument for how we should live right now is the Son of Man is coming again. Christ is going to return a second time, and we must be ready. Uh, we're going to look at Jesus' uh, teaching on this subject in three sections. We'll look at the, return, or the reward of Christ's return, the timing of Christ's return, and the consequence of Christ's return. The reward, the timing, the consequence of Christ's return. Uh, let's look at the first one, because it, it's nice talking about reward. Uh, the reward of Christ's return. Again, through all of this, we're trying to answer that question, though. How are we to live as disciples of Jesus? What does a, 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 the life of a genuine disciple look like in the here and now? Verse 35. Uh, so instead of fearing the judgment of man and living hypocritically, and, and instead of being anxious about life and living materialistically, a follower of Jesus should live like this. And Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast so that they may open the door to him uh, at once when he comes and knocks. And like I said, in, in each of these parables, there's a master and a servant, and Jesus is the master and his disciples are the servants. And he uses that word servant, uh, the Greek word there, for six different times. And, and sometimes that word is translated into the English as, as slave or servant or bond servant. So depending on your translation, it might turn up in different ways. And it can be described as an involuntary servant or a voluntary servant. But Jesus uses that word in a real positive sense. In fact, it's the very same word that Paul uses to describe Jesus himself in Philippians 2, right? Remember, he says, when, when, when Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. It's the same word, being born in the likeness of men, right? And so if Jesus became a servant, how did he serve us, right? Well, you keep reading in, in Philippians 2, by humbling himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, by paying the penalty of your sins on the cross, Jesus is serving us in that way, okay? So again, Jesus, he never calls us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. So when he likens us to servants here, it's not this oppressive kind of thing. He's actually calling us to be like him, which is beautiful and amazing. And in fact, that word servant is one of Paul's favorite ways to speak of his relationship with Jesus. Um, this is on the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to kind of come back to this, so burn this into your brains. Paul said, this is how one should regard us 
as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards to be found faithful. And really, that is the thesis of Jesus' teaching here. That nails, it hits the nail on the head of what Jesus is talking about in Luke 12 and what he's calling us to be, to be servants and faithful stewards of what he's entrusted us with. Back in Luke 12, Jesus says followers should, should be like stewards, should be these servants who are waiting on their master to come home from a wedding party. Right? They're, they're ready to welcome him home. And he says at the top of the verse to stay dressed for action. Right? It's literally let your loins stay girded. It's this picture of a man with his long robes tucked into his belt and he's ready for action. He's, he's prepared to run. He says keep your lamps burning. It, it's, it's not bedtime, right? It's, it's, it's not time. Many people may have gotten comfortable and, and gone to sleep, but, but not you, right? It's, it's not time to get comfortable. It's time to stay awake and alert and, and waiting for your master to return any moment now. And in verse 37, says, blessed are, the, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Right, there's a, there's a blessing for the servants who are ready and alert and awake when he, when he returns. There's, there's a reward. And so what is that blessing? Well, we see it in the second part of verse 37. Blessed are the servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, that word truly is powerful. It means amen. It means this, this will most certainly come to pass. You can bank on this happening. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service. That's the master returning. Dresses himself for service, and he has them, his servants, recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. Like right there, that's, that's the most incredible promise of the entire Bible. That, that, that this is the most mind-boggling promise. This is what makes Christianity upside down and different from every other religion in the world. Like if there's one thing your heart should long for, it should be this, for Christ to return and for him to find you faithful and, and ready and anticipating his return and then for him to, to wrap his apron around his waist and, and to show you your place at his table and for him to serve you. He, 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 he meets your welcome of his return with a welcome of his own, and he gives you rest. Don't you want that? Do, do, do you see how he's, he, he's painting this opposite picture from the rich, greedy farmer that we looked at last week? That, that, that man who had no concern for eternity. He had, he had no fear of God. His focus was only on the here and now not on others and helping others, but on his own life, right? So his only goal was to build bigger barns for his goods so that he could retire, right? So that he could get comfortable and, and relax and eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus says that way of life is foolish. Instead, we should realize how short life is, that there's more to life than the here and now, that, that Christ is coming again. And an earthly rest, although he gives rest for your soul and the, the discomfort of this life, but an, an earthly comfort, an earthly rest, is not what our hearts should long for. Rather, we should anticipate an, an eternal comfort, an eternal rest that only Jesus offers when he returns. Right? That this world, it's not our home. So, so don't be concerned with making the, the most comfortable and beautiful life possible in the here and now. 
Jesus is coming again, and, and, and he is where true rest and comfort will be enjoyed for all of eternity. But what a reward for those who stay dressed for action and have their lamps burning, and they're, they're waiting for the master to return. Um, I can't wait. And so like children who are anticipating a reward, we want to know when it's coming, right? When is Christ returning? And, and well, Jesus talks about the timing of his return in verses 38 to 40, kind of. Uh, the answer to the question, when is he coming, is given at the end of verse 40. Well, he's coming at an hour that you don't expect. <laughs> um, it'd be nice to have a date, Jesus, right? It'd be nice to have a time so that we can plan, and that's how it normally works, right? That, that, that I, if I have a day off and I don't have much on my to-do list, but I know we're going for dinner at seven, well, then I'll, I know I'm probably going to get a shower at about six, and then I'm going to get ready, and then I'll be ready to go by quarter to seven, right? I'm not going to be ready at 10 a.m. I make a plan based on a certain time when I should be ready for, but, but Jesus says, no, you, you need to be ready all the time. You don't know when he'll return, so we must be ready any time. We must stay dressed for action. We must keep our lamps burning. Remember what Jesus' aim in his teaching is here, right? He, he wants to increase our faith, right? He, he, his aim is to produce a, a response in his hearers. He, he wants us to trust him. He, he's, he's looking for genuine faith. And so when the Son of Man returns, at an hour that we do not expect, that's when a, a, a disciple's true colors are revealed, right? Th that, that's when he will see uh, possibly genuine faith, when he, when he catches us in faithfulness. Then you know it's real. So in regard to the timing of his return, the question really is, will you be ready regardless of when he returns? Will you be ready in verse, verse 38 if he comes in the second watch of the night or the third watch of the night? Will he find you awake and ready then? J Jewish timekeeping is a little different. They have three watches of the night, and so the, the second and the third watches of the night for us would be 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. I don't know about you, but the, that's the time when I'm least ready for anything. Like, if you come knocking on my door in those hours, I'm 100% answering in my jammies, right? I'm not ready for anything from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Jesus says, will you be ready for me even then? Blessed are the servants who are ready for action and are waiting for my return at all times. Um, verse 39 is a little confusing depending on the translation that you're using. I don't love the way the ESV translated, translates it as the master of the house uh, because the, the word master there, it, it's, it's a different word than all the other times master is used. And all the other times master is used, it's this word for Lord or master and it's referring to Jesus but in verse 39, the master of the house, it's a different Greek word, which means head of the house, or, or the, the kind of chief steward of the house. So, so in verse 39, Jesus isn't the master of the house. He's actually putting himself in the place of the thief. And he's talking about the timing of his return, not by give, giving them a date and a time, but telling them the time will be like when a thief comes. And when do thieves usually come? Well, they come when, when you least expect them to come. And that's his point, and it's as simple as that. But really, the point he's trying to drive home is, well, be ready all the time. At verse 39, he's, he's essentially describing Home Alone, the movie, right? <laughs> like, little Kevin, he, he hears when the thieves are coming, and so he makes sure he's ready, 
right? He, he makes sure he's, he's in the house and he's, he's looking out for their arrival. And Jesus says, yeah, of course, if you know when the thief's coming, but you don't. So in verse 40, he kind of flips it and he says, you must stay alert. You, you must be ready, even though I'm coming at an hour you do not expect. And then in verse 41, Peter asks a question. He says, Lord, are you, ter- are you telling this parable for us? Or are you telling it for everyone to hear? And remember, the setting hasn't changed yet. There's many thousands in the crowd surrounding them. And we've seen so far that there's times when Jesus is speaking to the entire crowd. But then there's other times when he just kind of turns and he's speaking to his 12 disciples. And so Peter's wondering if, if Jesus is saying these things about being ready for his return and, and the reward of his return Is he saying those things just for the 12, just for genuine disciples, those who are in? Or is he saying this for anyone to hear? And so Jesus answers Peter's question with a question, because it's a difficult question to answer. Um, Some commentators will give reasons why he's probably speaking to just disciples. Others will say, well, it's better to understand it as the latter. He's speaking for everyone to hear. Um, I think it's a both-and situation. It's, it's hard to give a straight answer to because he's definitely giving instructions for his disciples. But anyone can be one, right? So it's for all to hear. And so in verse 42, Jesus answers Peter's question and he says, well, who is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So, so the, the manager there, that's the steward of the house who is to be prepared. It's the faithful servant waiting for the master. And, and they have been made responsible for caring for the master's household while he's away. Right? They're there to feed those in his household when it's dinner time and, and all of those kind of ways. So remember uh, 1 Corinthians uh, Chapter 4, what Paul said, this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God, and it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. So back in Luke 12, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is how he's answering Peter's question. Is this just for genuine disciples of uh, of Jesus that you're saying here, or is this for everyone? Well, Jesus says, "I'm, I'm speaking to genuine disciples, but here's how you know who is a genuine disciple. Here's how you know who is a genuine faithful steward. It's someone who's faithful over what I've set them over. They're these stewards who are found faithful when I return. And so you might be wondering, well, I thought we were saved by grace through faith, not by works, right? Isn't it genuine faith, not works, that Jesus will be looking for when he returns? And that's absolutely right. We do not earn our way into God's favor with good living. But that's not what Jesus is getting at here. He's simply showing us how genuine faith reveals itself. Jesus never allows us to separate our trust in him from our obedience to him. A person with genuine faith and trust in Jesus, it's not someone who who merely pays lip service to Jesus as Lord. No person with genuine faith is someone whose faith reveals itself in obedience. 
Remember James chapter one urges genuine followers of Jesus to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of it. Right? If, he says if you're just hearers of the word, we're deceiving ourselves. True disciples will be doers of the word. They'll, they'll, they'll have faith in action. Walking in obedience and following Jesus' commands, it's a mark that distinguishes true believers from those who merely pay lip service to Jesus as master. Right, friends, Jesus is coming again, and he'll be looking for his disciples who are ready for his return. And the marker of a genuine disciple is that they will be a faithful steward. Right, they, they, they realize that there's more to life than the here and now. And they're, they're, they're caught spending their life, not building their own kingdom, but, but asking, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done. How can I build your kingdom on earth? They're caring for the needs of others rather than purely the needs and the desires of self. In verse 43, he says, Blessed is the servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes, when he catches them in their faithfulness. Truly, I say to you, here's that truly, you can bank on this reward, he will set them over all of his possessions. Look back at verse 32. It reminds me of verse 32, right? Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so, care for the needy. Store your treasures in heaven. There's great reward for you if you do. There's great reward for your faithfulness. But then in verse 45, he turns and he gives a contrast. And so here we're seeing this final point, the consequence of Christ's return. If if faithful servants can anticipate their master's pleasure and gracious reward at his return, look at the serious contrasting consequence in verse 45. He says, but if that servant says to himself, oh, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat, drink, and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him in with the unfaithful. And the servant who knew the master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating or, or, or few blows. Here's the part of the parable that can either confuse you and, and harden your heart and make you roll your eyes and walk away from Jesus. Or you can have ears to hear and, and, and stay close and humbly listen and receive what Jesus is saying. In this final section, the consequences of Christ's return, again, as he's been doing all through these chapters, he's showing us two ways of living. Faithfully, or, un, or faithlessly. Servants who faithfully steward the master's household while he's away will be blessed when he returns. The master will reward them by taking their role and seating them at his table and serving them himself. What a reward. But, but the second way is the faithless servant who because of their unfaithfulness can only expect punishment. Their actions have proved that they're, they're actually not loyal servants to the master at all. 
And instead of serving others in the master's household and and stewarding his household while he's away, they begin to beat them. And they eat and drink and get drunk. What does that sound like? It sounds like the rich, greedy farmer again, right? Who, who, Who has no fear of God. He has no concern for eternity. He only has concern for himself. And so his response is, eat, drink, be merry. Store up things for myself. Instead of caring for others, this person is abusing them and serves himself with earthly indulgence proving that he's actually not a faithful servant at all. He's revealing his true colors, and the consequences are serious. And Jesus gives three varying punishments. Notice in the first two, he uses that word servant. The third one, he doesn't. We'll get to that in a second. But the first one is the servant who's outright disobedient. He, He does the opposite of what he was commanded And his punishment is to be cut in pieces and put with the unfaithful. Sounds violent, doesn't it? But be careful, friends, not to read this with a a 21st century uh, Netflix true crime docuseries kind of lens, okay? Jesus is making a much deeper point than mere violent sensationalism. In the Old Testament, there's a ceremony for entering into a covenant with God where an animal would be cut into two and, and you would pass in between the two pieces to, to show the seriousness of breaking the covenant. You, you, you'd essentially be saying, if I break the covenant, let me be like this animal. And so Jesus may have been using that picture for his Jewish audience to, to, to say, hey, this servant has shown themselves to be unfaithful, and the punishment is serious. Remember back to his warning at the top of the chapter, warning against hypocrisy, saying one thing but doing another, paying lip service to Jesus' lordship but not actually living as if he actually is. And Jesus is saying the punishment for that kind of hypocrisy is is total separation and outright rejection. I can't help but think of Judas during chapter 12. It, it, It feels like the entire chapter 12 is essentially a don't be like Judas warning because he was one of the 12 who walked with Jesus, right? And, and he participated in his household with responsibility. On the outside, Judas looked like a genuine follower of Jesus, a real steward in his household. Judas definitely would have come to church on Sundays. He would have served in some capacity. But he wasn't really a genuine disciple, He didn't truly believe that Jesus was Lord. And in the end, he was pulled away by the lure of materialism and the things of this world. And his punishment was serious. The second punishment, verse 47, is another supposed servant in his household who knew the master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will. Could this be a sin of commission, sin of omission kind of situation? He receives a severe beating. He's he's also proven that he's faithless. And then the last punishment in verse 48, notice he doesn't say servant this time, but, but someone who did not know, but still fails to obey, and their punishment will be few or light blows. There's plenty to be confused by at this point. There, there's there's uh, lots of questions to be asked, and that's good and welcome. But for this morning, I just want to step back for a second and see again the two ways Jesus is presenting There's the faithful group who the grace of God 
has produced faithful service to God. And then there's the faithless group, and it seems like Jesus is wanting to paint a full picture of what faithlessness looks like, because we can be guilty of faithlessness in a lot of ways. The first two examples are the servants who claim to be disciples of Jesus, who either know the master's will but but don't do it, or like Judas, they know the master's will but they outright disobey it. But both servants show themselves that neither of them have genuine faith. And the last one seems to be an unbeliever who's no less obligated to place their faith in Jesus and, and serve him because he's the only way to eternal rest. And Jesus is saying all of these varieties of unfaithfulness still receive punishment rather than reward when I return. The future for the faithless is separation from God rather than a seat at his table. And you might be thinking, how can we reconcile these parables with Jesus' message of grace and forgiveness? How do we reconcile this with the gospel message? Uh, well, I'd say I'm, I'm thankful Luke's gospel doesn't end in chapter 12. Because you keep reading and you see what happens when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. Where he fulfills his purpose for coming to earth in the first place. Which was to receive the punishment himself for our unfaithfulness on the cross. Although he was the, the perfectly faithful servant who deserved no punishment, he went to the cross for us who did. And there he received the severe beating himself. There on the cross, he was cut into pieces and put in with the unfaithful. He was counted as unfaithful so that we might be counted as faithful and perfectly righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel of grace. He died in your place. He took the punishment for your unfaithfulness in order that in him we might be counted as faithful. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to make a way for unfaithful servants who rightly deserve the punishment to freely become faithful servants who will receive his reward, but it's only through him that that's possible. You see, none of us are the faithful servant on our own. We are all born into the faithless, deserving of punishment group. And when Christ returns, our only hope that any of us have is located in Christ's mercy and forgiveness on the cross, not in our own merit. Our only hope of being welcomed at the table of eternal rest and reward is by the cross of Jesus, not by anything that we have done to earn it. And so believers, as Christians, we don't need to fear that we might be condemned in the final judgment, but grace does not end accountability. Grace does not end accountability. Rather, the the goal of grace is to create a people who are faithful and zealous in their service to God. Right? The, the, The goal of grace is not just to give you eternal rest in heaven. It is, but the goal, the also the goal of grace is to create a people who are faithful and zealous in their service for God. Right? So when we understand what He's done for us. When we receive that grace, when we find our hope in Jesus and what he's accomplished on the cross for us, 
when we confess our unfaithfulness and our sin and we welcome the Holy Spirit in our lives, we begin to change. In true repentance, in true belief, the Holy Spirit begins to change us. And our faith becomes action and we begin to bear his fruit and we live lives of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. But friends, it's the Holy Spirit at work in us. Titus 2.11 is on the screen. It, 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 it encapsulates all of this. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared. How has the grace of God appeared? Christ has come the first time. He, he came, he appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12 says, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, right now, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Right, so the grace of Jesus has, has appeared and, and brought us salvation, but, but genuine salvation does something in us. It produces something in us, faithfulness. He's, he's training us to renounce worldly passions and to, to live godly lives. Jesus has redeemed us from lawlessness and he's purifying us. He is making us holy people who are faithful stewards in his household. Right? We, we begin to live this out when? In the present age, right now, as we wait for Christ to come again. As we wait for our blessed hope to return. Right? With his help, not on our own, but with his training and purifying, we are turning away from worldliness as we wait. With his help, we turn away from our sinful desires as we wait. With his help, we're faithful stewards as we wait for Jesus, our hope to return. But we're depending on his training, right? On, on his purifying step, every, uh, purify, purifying every step of the way, right? Genuine disciples of Jesus, faithful stewards in his household while he's away, we live gospel-shaped lives, right? The, the gospel, it shapes us. It, it changes us. And knowledge of the future should change the way we live in the present. Take a deep breath, okay? The, this purifying process doesn't happen overnight, okay? You don't get saved and you wake up the next day a perfect, faithful steward ready for him to come, right? Right? but are you taking that sanctification seriously? Are you setting your mind and your affections on heavenly things? Are you open to the Holy Spirit's working and training in your life, or are you resistant to him? Friends, remember we are saved by grace through faith, right? We're saved when perfectly faithful Jesus took the punishment for our faithfulness. And, and by his sacrifice on the cross, we are brought from the unfaithful group to the, to the faithful group. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He received the severe punishment that we deserved. By grace we are saved. That's the glory of the gospel. Revel in it. 
Be happy in it. But grace does not end accountability. Right? By, by grace, you are brought into God's kingdom, into his community. But to be a member of his community is to have responsibility in it. That's how families work. Right? That, that's how growing works. That's how what, this is how Jesus ends in verse 48. He says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will, will be required. And from, whom, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Here's my paraphrase of that verse. He saved us not just for eternal rest, for, for heavenly rest one day, but also for us to steward today what he's put us over. To steward what he's put us over in the present until he comes again, right? Grace does not end accountability. We're part of his family, we, which means we grow up, right? We, we, we take responsibility, we mature, we become more and more like him, your faithful obedience does not save you, but it does prove that your salvation is real. So he's looking for those who are ready. And I'll end with one last plea uh, to read these serious parables in the context of the rest of chapter 12. If you're just reading them on their own and feeling terrified, you're in a bad spot, okay? Man, I really need to clean up my act so that I can get to heaven. If you feel that way when you leave, I've totally failed you, Okay? Please go back and read the rest of the chapter and remember all of those times that Jesus says, fear not, do not be anxious. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If the birds of the air need not worry because God meets their every need, you have even less to worry about because he values you so much more than birds. He knows your every need and he will meet your every need. In fact, he sent his only son to die to meet your greatest need, and then he doesn't just leave it up to you to figure it out after that. No, he, he comes to you, and he, he puts his spirit inside of you in order to complete your sanctification. You just need to trust him. So will you trust him? Will you sit long enough and quietly enough to hear his voice? Will you read his word so that you can know him? Will you commit to being a faithful participant in his church? Will you make prayer a priority in your life? This is what it looks like to live in total dependence on God every day. Jesus is looking for those who are genuine disciples and ready and waiting for his return. Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And when he does, he'll have his faithful servants recline at his table and he'll serve them. And we'll enjoy eternal, that eternal hope that we've been waiting on. That's coming, but he also serves you in the present. He, he, he gives you exactly what you need in order to be faithful. Do you want to be found faithful? Depend on him. Go to him. Live a life of total dependence on him. It's the only way. And so instead of mustering up our faithfulness somewhere within us, which you won't be able to do, you'll fail. 
Instead, as Hebrews 4 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's stand and pray. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you love us enough uh, to speak the truth to us, and sometimes the truth slices us open, and we don't like what we find in there, but as a surgeon, your word opens us up to heal us, and Lord, I pray that, that your spirit would do that this morning, that these teachings wouldn't um, turn people away in hardness, but that they would bring them close enough to humbly hear with ears to hear and to see the truth of what you've done in their place and what you're bringing us into, what eternal rest is offered for those who come to you and depend on you. We thank you, Lord, that you give us exactly what we need uh, to, to be found faithful when you return. It's all based on your faithfulness, not ours. Um, but Lord, would we come to you for exactly what we need. Um, in Jesus' name, amen.